guys, we're in the middle of a pandemic and these are trying times. It's hard on our mental health, our mental state. And this is why I love our sponsor today, BetterHelp. They're the largest online counseling platform worldwide. They change the way people get help with facing life's challenges by providing convenient, discreet, affordable access to licensed therapists. BetterHelp makes professional counseling available anytime, anywhere, through a computer, tablet, or smartphone. It's brilliant. Sign up today. Go to betterhelp.com backslash solving healthcare and get 10% off sign up fees. Welcome to Solving Healthcare. I'm Quadro Caramante. I'm an ICU and palliative care physician here in Ottawa and the founder of Resource Optimization Network. We are on a mission to transform healthcare in Canada. I'm going to talk with physicians, nurses, administrators, patients, and their families because inefficiencies, overwork, and overcrowding affects us all. I believe it's time for a better healthcare system that's more cost-effective, dignified, and just for everyone involved. Quadcast Nation, we're doing it again, people. We're doing it again. We are getting some of the brightest minds when it comes to infectious disease, public health, to come up and talk to you, talk to us about all things vaccine, all things variants. Is there going to be a third wave? Some of y'all might have seen me on the show busting out why I don't think a third wave is happening. Maybe someone on this uh, panel will contradict what I had to say but listen these are the brightest of the bright that we got in the mix so number one before before getting into it I just want to say thank you Zane Chagla Sumar Chakrabarty welcome to the podcast as usual thank you and a couple couple housekeeping things before we get started we have beautiful content that comes through our newsletter so if you guys want to be able to get our health tips, latest podcasts, latest podcast ideas coming through. Just type in news in the text box and uh, you'll get uh, you'll get the, the most recent and latest information from the Quadcast Nation. Um, you like what I'm if you like what I'm wearing, solventhealthcare.ca backslash shop. Got all our merch, got our seminars all in the mix. So yeah, don't hesitate to, to check that out. Last thing, despite this being an all-male panel, I'm going to dress it straight up. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to be straight up. Happy International Women's Day. We got Julia helping out, thank God. But I, 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 I just want to, want to give some love uh, on a special day like this where, uh, you know, there's a lot of uh, be- the, better, the better halves out there that have contributed so much to science to the arts to whatever to all and uh no we're forever grateful it's a great day to celebrate so thank you all right gentlemen should we just dive into this bad boy i, I think you know what i'm gonna i'm gonna start with zane because i feel zane's this is a sophomore jumping in the mix so he's also gonna... way smarter so that's good so that i can go afterwards <laughs> and, and just copy what he said or Brother. you know the other way around i can go and he can show me up whatever you want Fair enough. Fair enough. I think I'm going to leave this a little bit open, actually, Zane. Um, yeah. There's a lot of hype with the vaccines. There's a lot of concerns. There's a lot of excitement. Without putting words in your mouth, why are you excited about the the Canadian vaccine situation? Look, like, 
it's March eighth, right? Do you do you remember March eighth last year? Do, <laughs> I don't do want you remember? To. I don't. I do not want to. Uh, like like I think it was. I, I want to say it was March tenth. They did that Utah game where Rudy Gobert tests positive. You know, I had Lakers tickets the next week, and like I even in my head, I'm like, this is, does not seem like a great idea going forward. But anyways, you know, Rudy Gobert tests positive, NBA shuts down, everything shuts down three days later. I think of that day a lot, right? And I think of that week a lot because it was like, you knew this thing was going to be here for a while. There was nothing we could do about it. It was spreading all over the world to every corner of the earth. It was hitting our hospitals. You know, uh, yes, we talked about vaccines and I think Pfizer was just doing a little bit of that pre-work with BioNTech with mRNA vaccines. But we're talking a year later we're talking about a rollout plan of four different vaccines. That's just incredible. Like, can you think of this? Like a year ago, we had no clue how this pandemic was gonna end. We had no clue if we can even develop a feasible vaccine. You know, the only model of respiratory tract infection vaccine we have uh, for a virus, you know, is, is influenza. And that's not a perfect vaccine on its own. Uh, and, and now we're talking about 60 to 90 percent effective vaccines vaccines that stop hospitalizations and deaths vaccines that can be administered with as little as a single dose i mean this is where the excitement is right like Mm. we have essentially used human ingenuity and science to actually get our way out of a pandemic where 100 years ago it would just rip through humanity that would be the solution right that would be the only thing we could do is you could do it fast or do it slow but it'll rip through humanity um, and now we're, we're talking about, you know, again, a vaccine stretch it hasn't been perfect. We don't have a great supply. And, and I think, you know, at, at the end of the day, we are Canada, we're not a manufacturer. We're not the EU. We don't have a block. And so we, we're, you know, we have contracts for vaccines. We'll get them as we come. And it might be a little later than the other parts of the world, but we're getting people vaccinated. You know, the, if you look at what's happening in long-term care, like it's incredible, with the amount of COVID we have in our community, long-term care should be a disaster right now. And we're talking about less than 200 cases in long-term care, which is unheard of at this point in the pandemic, right? And so, yeah, this is just proof of principle. These vaccines are potent. We're getting them out. We're getting to the right people. We have a lot of supply coming in over the next few months. You know, things are looking brighter by the day. And again, I would pray for this moment last year, uh, even if we have vaccine rollout delayed. For this moment last year. Uh, that is so well put. Like in terms of putting it into perspective, I like I remember from for me like it was more the clinical side, like being in the ICU. We got our first patient wheeled in about I want to say the seventeenth ish of March. And how fearful, how scary that was, and how our lives completely changed. And there was no clear hope in sight. You know what I mean? And now we're where we are today with the vaccines, with four approved in our nation. God damn, it's a it's a special time. It is a special time. Suma, let me ask you. So a lot of hype and chat about you know people having concerns about efficacy in terms of one vaccine versus another. And, and, you know, Zane touched on it a little bit, but what is kind of like your approach or or advice when you see people are like, damn, I don't want that AstraZeneca, you know, it's only 68%, you know what I mean? Like it's uh, like, I'm going to hold out. I'm going to hold out for the, 
the the, the better ones. Uh, what, what what thoughts come to mind? Well, this is actually something that uh, I'll admit that I've, I've talked a lot with Zane, uh, Dr. Chagla here and uh, Dr. Bogac. To kind of, it's just to inform the opinion is that when you look at these trials, right, they were done in very different times, different circumstances. Um, some were in areas where there's lots of variants, some in areas where there's lots of um, infection, others where there, it was a time of the year there wasn't really as much infection. The point that I'm trying to make is that there, there are kind of different, it's, it's a bit of more of like a apples and oranges situation. So what I'd like to do, and you know, a simple guy, I'm I'm not an academic guy. I like to try to um, compare these things right now for what we need in a public health emergency on an even playing field. What do they do for me for deaths and hospitalizations? Okay. And, you know, I, I know there's, this is not exactly hundred percent, but they're really, really effective in the trials showing that, uh, look, there's essentially nobody in, the, in all five of the vaccine trials that we have, including Novavax, where there is not one person or maybe one person hospitalized and there's no deaths. Now, I know that's not going to be perfect the entire, as all the data comes in, but even in the real world, what we're seeing happening in Israel, what we're seeing happening in the UK, it's unbelievable, okay? And uh, something that, you know, we thought that something like 50, 60% efficacy would be what we would be jumping at. We're seeing way better than that. And I think that we've all been talking at some point thinking, look, we're not ever going to eliminate this thing. If we can get this thing to a point where we turn a major disease into either nothing or something minor where you don't have to get infected, that is our ticket out of the pandemic. And I want you guys to groan at this next line. We have the answer in our hands. We need to now get it into our arms. <laughs> oh. Oh. Terrible dad joke, but oh dad my God, your kids must be screaming. Oh <laughs> your, your kids are I'm single now, by the way. So <laughs> just, just, just. <laughs> oh my God. Oh, you're going to get me off my game. Um, Yes. Okay. I, uh, yeah, the, in terms of, uh, efficacy, I like the, um, the point in terms of metrics that we need to be considering here. Like I, you know, cause once again, in amongst, I think what I, what I've seen 70,000 studied, I think one person in the Moderna trial got hospitalized. Yeah. Like that's insane. And then when you, as you said, you look at the real life data, UK, Israel, like, um, it is showing the, the the vaccines are quite effective. So when it comes to when it comes to maybe Zane, I'll, I'll hit you up. When it comes to like just being as upfront with it as possible, AstraZeneca, and there was a lot of um, concerns with NASI, for example, not not offering that to our elderly population. Um, any thoughts on that in general when it comes to AZ? Yeah, I mean, I, so recognizing that the AstraZeneca trial didn't enroll as many people over the age of 65 as the other trials. And that is the major difference here. They enrolled about 6,000. They kind of combined two trials together. They had a couple of hundred individuals over the age of 65. And none of, or very few, I think zero or one of them ended up getting COVID in each arm, the placebo or the vaccine. And so it doesn't mean that the vaccine doesn't work. It's just, you didn't have the numbers to really show an effect there. Um, if you had 2000, if you had 20,000, you would probably start seeing that difference right away. The phase two data suggests that again, T cell, B cell responses are actually pretty good in 65 plus year olds. Um, and, uh, and again, you know, there just, it's not the clinical data there. And so I, I understand where NASI came from with that statement to say, okay, looking at the clinical data, a little more robust that we have at this point, um, you know, we just can't make conclusion is 
efficacious for mules because there's just not enough of them in this trial to make a conclusion. But the big advantage of this vaccine is one country has taken a gamble on it and published its experience. And in fact, us as Canadians are benefiting from that experience, right? The UK took this gamble, the rates are out of control, things are going crazy. Uh, and so, you know, they said, we would rather just get people vaccinated and figure it out over time rather than necessarily, you know, getting to the perfect vaccine over time. And so, you know, a good study from Scotland looking at first dose vaccinations as compared to a historical control, Pfizer and AstraZeneca, you actually see the AstraZeneca vaccine in, in those individuals actually outpacing the Pfizer oh. vaccine after the first dose. You see three hospitalizations after day 28 after someone gets an AstraZeneca vaccine as compared to the historical control, which is huge, like up to 94% efficacy. You also have another trial out of the United Kingdom where they look at first doses, particularly amongst elderly individuals. You actually see less symptomatic COVID-19. So the, the one thing that we critique AstraZeneca about because symptomatic COVID-19, that 67% or 62%, you actually see that number getting closer to 70-ish percent, which is higher than Pfizer-BioNTech after the first dose in, in the UK experience, in the elderly individuals who get this vaccine. Mm. And so I think there is enough real-life data emerging to suggest this is an effective vaccine. We've seen governments like Germany and France pivot and say, actually, considering that data that's coming out, you know, it looks comparable to Pfizer-BioNTech. It's not even like it's a grade lower. It is actually comparable, if not better, in some of these trials for 65-plus-year-olds. Um, and again, I think the big elephant in the room about this vaccine is it is fridge stable. And so the requirement to get it out there into to family doctors, pharmacies, arenas, homeless shelters is, is so, so much more potent. Uh, it is, you know, from a side effect profile, actually a little bit less than the Moderna and Astra and uh, Pfizer vaccines in the sense that less of that, you know, sore arm, sore, sore, uh, sore muscles, that type of thing is part of it. Um, uh, and uh, again, this is the vaccine that that much of the world will use. And I think we have to recognize that. Like, you know, we in Canada, we're fortunate, we probably will have five vaccines coming to the market. Much of the world, much of the low and middle income world, particularly, will be an AstraZeneca fueled world in terms of their vaccine strategy. And I think, again, it's going to be efficacious for them and it's going to be efficacious for us to use it in that sense. So I don't have any doubts this is going to be an, an, an effective, not an effective vaccine in over 65. I think it will be. Actually, good clinical benefits suggest, you know, dose delays for this actually probably improve this vaccine. Uh, so that day 90 post-vaccination is probably the most optimal strategy for this vaccine, which is fantastic because you can give doses out quicker. Um, and again, you know, the safety profile, the refrigeration profile, like this is a good vaccine. And in real life, this might perform better than some of the other vaccines we think are better in that sense. That's, it's unbelievable. Isn't that, isn't that amazing, though, like that narrative uh, or that um, aspect of real world data hasn't really come into mainstream media like when you like I, it was news to me like for those that don't know well everyone doesn't know we're all in the same kind of like chat group and the amount of anything you hear me saying on the news is based on this chat group <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I feed him bad bad yeah, you, stuff like bums yeah, ears absolutely. And stuff. <laughs> but like when you yeah looking at the uk scottish data 
and and seeing actually like uh, single dose can uh, have improved outcome relative to Pfizer um, using uh, real life data. Like it's, and then we're gonna say, you know, obviously as you as you put it, based on the studies, which is un- underpowered, I guess for for looking at elderly patients. This is why it was it was um, uh, not recommended by NASI, but. Once again, these details aren't really, you don't see them in, in, in the fine print. You don't see them in the news. And this is why I think this platform is good to be able to express it. You don't have to be cut off after 43 seconds. You know what I'm saying? Um, Suman, what do you, like your personal thoughts on the delayed strategy for vaccinations, i.e. normally, I mean, I, I got my Pfizer three weeks apart. You know what I'm saying? As per study protocol. Um, now we're going to be busting that out four months, four months gap, potentially. You know, what is your thoughts on this strategy? So it's kind of twofold. So I think that, first of all, I like the idea of getting as many first doses as you can. So like if you got, you know, 100 people. Uh, I think it's better to have 100 people that are half protected as opposed to 50 that are fully and uh, 50 that are completely unprotected. From the point of view of public, like a population health, trying to kind of break those chains of transmission, I think that's the way to go. Okay. The second thing is, is that, uh, you know, my, my uh, mentor, Jay Keystone, uh, he was a, a big vaccinologist. As one, one, one of, it was kind of his, his minor, if you will. Uh, he used to always talk about, it's a, there's a very, very big precedent for separating vaccine intervals. So just to give you an example, hepatitis A, you can go anywhere from six to 36 months for the second dose. So the idea, the way vaccine immunology works and the memory response, sometimes going longer actually strengthens the response. Now, of course, the other caveat is you, you don't want to go crazy and kind of start doing 36 months with the dose. You want to stick to the trial. I think that we have data um, up to three months. I will be honest with you. And I, you know, I'm not a guy that trashes um, uh, people that uh, are things that uh, I don't agree with, but I will say that the four month thing surprised me because it just kind of came out of the, the, the blues. For, you know, we, we, we talked about nine weeks, or six weeks, sorry, we talked about 12, but all of a sudden it was four months and now everybody suddenly moved towards that. And the reason that bothered me is because the initial thing from NASI that came out about AstraZeneca, they didn't want to use it in 65 and older because of lack of data. Right. That was what, that was their position, which I also didn't really agree with, especially with, with what was going on in UK and uh, in, in England and Scotland. But then here you don't really have that much data. Um, there might've been a model, maybe a mathematical model to go with that four months. I'm not completely sure, but I'm noticing at least in our, in, in our province, they, they said up to four months, but they're, everybody's going to four months, mm. right? I, I suspect it is a supply thing, but I think we just have to be careful about just going straying too far off the trial. So I think it is great to get as many first doses out as possible. It's great that we can feel comfortable with somewhat stretching the interval, but I think we should be careful about going too much outside of the trial. Fair enough. Zane, I saw you had a thread on this, actually, that actually I found quite informative. What were your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, so so I think Dr. Suman got it right, right? Like, we have two to three months data here. It might be a bit long, but I think it's probably a delay that's preferable. We know vaccines and that memory response and boosting response is not something that just disappears like that. There is a buffer where we're boosting actually works in that sense. 
I think that concept of getting more doses out there. So again, if we had perfect supply right now, if they were 72 million doses of, uh, of Pfizer vaccine coming in tomorrow, I would say 100%, let's just go with the full strategy of three weeks and then come back, right? Because we have 72 million doses, you do everyone, that's fine. The reality is, is in the next four months, we have 12.8 million doses of Pfizer. We have a few million doses of Moderna and a few million doses of AstraZeneca. So enough for maybe 15 million people in Canada. There's 30 million people that are probably eligible for these vaccines, given that we can't give them to under 16 year olds. Which means we have a choice here, right? Do you actually work to get 7.5 million people fully vaccinated, leaving a vulnerable what you know three quarters of that population out there or do you get 15 million people partially vaccinated it's not perfect there will be breakthrough infections and hospitalizations because you know again you don't get the full immune response but if you do slow chains of transmission you do create some more herd immunity within the population which will have rippling effects in terms of protecting everyone so if the general baseline risk in society is low then, then you also have you know, positive effects on every individual, even having a partial response, they're protected from the rest of society as well. And I think recognizing that, like, you know, again, right now we are struggling with hospitalizations, we're struggling with deaths. And so if in that context, you get less hospitalizations and deaths coming into the next two to three months, that is gonna help our system move forward. The last part is, listen, this is probably not the last vaccine people are going to get for COVID-19. I, you know, I, I think, you know, with, with variants of concern, with the need for probable boosters, with need of pediatric immunization strategy, we will probably see one or two or three boosters in our lifetime in the next little while. We know that Moderna and Pfizer, their boosters will not only boost our response to the immune escape variants of concern, but they'll likely boost the native response to COVID-19. So anything we may lose kind of with that delayed strategy, we probably will gain back over time. The nice thing is hopefully when the dust settles, then we're not talking about hospitalizations and deaths. We're just talking about updating our vaccine so that we you know, have the most robust response for the next five, 10, 15 years. So again, they're, they're risks, they're calculated gambles. It's not the perfect scenario. And again, the perfect scenario is having vaccines like the United States where things are rolling in. But this is kind of a compromise saying this is what we have. These are the tools we have for the next three months. What can we do to change our pandemic as much as possible? And I think this is the strategy that, that is as close to as optimization as, as, as we can. And, and, and um, yeah, I have to say, and I didn't think I'd ever say this in this context, I'm a little bit envious of the states right now. They've Vaccinated oh 90 million people. It's insane. It's insane. If you think about it, it's like the yeah. Israel of the West or something. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, boom. Like, just like. That's my vaccine sound effect, by the way. Vaccine rollout? Yeah. I mean, essentially, that's what's happening down, down south. And uh, it's impressive. Impressive. Yeah, honestly. Um, I think. It's a natural transition into variants here. Um, trying to think of how to frame this. <laughs> you know, um, maybe we'll start with Suman. You know, there is, there has been a lot of fear based on the variants uh, of concern. 
more contagious. Sometimes you'll hear our, our leaders say it's more deadly. What is, maybe your general, uh, leave it open, like your general sentiment, when you hear people, us talking about uh, variants of concern, like what comes to mind? Like, does your, you start getting palpitations. Do you start like, you know, wanting to cry in the corner, you know, we're looking for a whiskey sour. Like, what is it? I don't know why I went with that. Um, but yeah, what are your thoughts? No. Um, so this is the thing that I think was when the variant, uh, if you remember before B117 was mentioned in December, there was another variant in the UK. What was it again? I forgot the name of it. D something it was like in September. D614G. That's the one. Right. Thank you. Um, so the thing is that I think that those of us who are in ID, you know, the idea of a virus varianting is something that's very, very well known. So I say like, the fact that this was happening was not surprising. But yeah, like it, 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 there was some concern that, look, the secondary attack rates and a lot of these clusters that they were seeing in, in the UK were su suggesting that well, this looks like it might be more transmissible. The thing that's always bothered me about the variants of concern, and I'll, I'll tell you. So first of all, um, for the record, I, I respect them. I'm not saying to open up and have, uh, you know, uh, concerts. I'm just saying that We've, we took that information about them being transmissible at a time in England when they were having this surge in December, which many Western Christian countries had because of Christmas get-togethers. And you see that, not all of them, but so many of these countries had this spike in December and it came down precipitously in January. The only thing that I'm trying to say is, could there have been something in there that was a confounding this, transmi that, this transmissibility? Okay, but even if that's the case, you then move on. I think that what's been happening is people are saying, okay, this is more transmissible. So that automatically means that there's going to be more viral transmission. And what bothers me about that is that there's much more to viral transmission than just transmissibility. So for example, rhinovirus is extremely transmissible, but you don't see the rhinovirus like raging in, in July in Canada. And the reason is there's other factors that result in viral transmission. And I think that what was happening uh, and, I, and, and with all due respect to my colleagues in, um, in, in epidemiology, it, it felt like the number was being plugged into a model and it was giving this exponential wave, whereas it wasn't taking into account the fact that we're, we're moving into uh, the springtime. There's vaccines rolling out. There's also certain areas like I'm in Peel region, Mississauga, Ontario, where there's already been a lot of, we've been really hard hit. So there has to be some level of population immunity that would at least blunt things. And the, the, what I'm trying to say is that at least with B117, I suspect there's more to the story. There might be a bit of a sway, swell in the wavelet. I just don't, I can't see it being the same as the second wave. The second thing I'll say, I won't talk too long, but is the uh, variants of concern of their escape mutants. The thing that bothers me about that is that yes, in these kind of snapshots in time when they took people's serum and they found neutralizing antibodies, there was a comparatively lower level of antibody. Okay. That makes sense. But the thing is, is that that's kind of a snapshot in time. It doesn't take into account memory response. And it also doesn't take into account what the T cell response can do to the virus. So the other interesting thing is people leave out is even in, for example, Johnson & Johnson, even with variants in South Africa, the hospitalization rate for severe disease was still very, very low. Do I think we're going to need a booster like Dr. Chagla? I keep calling you Dr. Chagla. Screw you. You're Zane. It's what Zane said. Um, Zane, I think Zane's absolutely right. And so lots of virologists have been saying that we're going to have a booster at some point, right? We're going to need it. But is this going to hinder our current 
campaign of getting out of this pandemic with this vaccine campaign? I don't think so. Uh, so that's my, my thing. I have respect for it, but I'm just having trouble picturing it exploding. I've never seen, a, except for last year when you had a whole bunch of March break cases come back, I can't see a respiratory virus exploding in, in March, April, but I think caution is the way to go. Yeah, I think, yeah, just yeah, to, yeah, oh, sorry, yeah. go ahead, Dane. Yeah, you. No, no, no. I mean, I, I think Suman puts it so well, right? Because I think, you know, we described these VOCs based on a reproductive rate, right? And I think that got ingrained into us is if you have a single case, you have a reproductive rate, therefore your reproductive rate as a society changes when these cases show up in society. But, you know, we know from epidemiology, it's much more than that, right? It is, you know, the, the epidemiologic triangle. It's the host, the pathogen, and the environment, right? And so, yes, you've changed the pathogen factor. One of those points on the triangle has changed. The pathogen may have a higher viral load. It may have a better affinity for respiratory tract receptors. It may have a prolonged course of shedding. One of those features that leads to more transmission. But the host and the environment have not necessarily aren't necessarily reflective of the, the aspects in England at the time of transmission of B117. So you kind of had the right epidemiologic storm. You had a point in time where people were reopening, where bars and pubs were filled, where London itself proper was kind of where we are at stage two last year in that sense. Um, you know, where, where you could go limited capacity into certain places where people are getting together and rightfully and wrongly so. Um, and again, you had the host, which was a vulnerable population that was not immunized, where you had zero kind of um, baseline immunity, even in kind of the vulnerable sectors, nursing homes, da, 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 da. And so, you know, you, you led to this perfect storm. The problem is, is as we come up with epidemiologic estimates of what this means translated into other societies, we certainly have this pathogen replacing current pathogen because it is more fit and more transmissible. Um, but, you know, from a population standpoint, it's hard to bake all of those into a single measure when our society is so different in that sense. We're still distancing. We still have capacity limits. We still, I think most people after Christmas, you know, whatever happened at Christmas happened at Christmas, but people, you know, have made their choice. We still have big vulnerabilities where this can explode. And I think we, we definitely will have problems there in homeless shelters and in workplaces and other congregate settings. But I think if you bake it all into a single epidemiologic marker, a reproductive rate, and then we, um, we just apply it universally forward, you get into trouble, right? And it doesn't describe the, the epidemic as well as it should. And I think that's where this, you know, I think a lot of people were critiquing the modeling that came from the federal government a few weeks ago, where you saw that 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 figure where the, the, the cases just went straight up like that. But that's really the problem here is you, you take a homogenous model of exactly what this does. You bake it into one epidemiologic statistic and you just let it drive and see what happens. And again, that's not necessarily the complexity of real epidemiology at this point. It's a good estimate, but again, you have to put those assumptions in there that we act exactly like the conditions in England uh, at the time when, when this kind of explosive growth happened, we had no vaccines. Uh, and again, we have a vulnerability across all sectors in that sense. And I, there's two things I gotta add to that. Uh, one, uh, when it came to one of the, I forget the source and I apologize, but when it came to the South African variant, 
I thought I saw some data that was making it clear that it's not necessarily more transmissible. Yes, yeah, so it, it, it was, um, you know, it, it was consistent that there was there was decrease in casing in South Africa. But um, shoot, I wish I had the source. Uh, ignore that if you haven't seen it. Um, <laughs> second is, can we just take a quick comment on the modeling though throughout this pandemic? Can we? Can, are we allowed to do that? Are we allowed to comment on this bad boy? Like I know saying you hit that up a little bit, but my god you know what I'm yeah saying? i mean we're not modelers right like i think we we understand where it comes from it you know modeling is a tough science right and i, I give it to the people that do it you have to make assumptions on real world conditions that are often really really difficult to make right you have to make assumptions on what workplaces look like what susceptibility looks like what exposure looks like what adherence to public health rules look like and again, there are so many features of a model which are so hard to tease out, right? Like behavioral interventions. So if we institute a lockdown and then people decide not to get together because society has instituted a lockdown, how do you separate that into the model? Because if you, if you put that in, you, know, you, you say, well, the lockdown and the fact that capacity limits were so reduced decreased transmission, well, is it that, or is it because, you know, again, everyone said, oh God, this is serious. We got to stop getting together. You know, they, you know that, that, that type of behavior really locks down. Uh, and that's really what, what is baked into that figure. And so again, modeling is a tough science. You know, you, you never want to be right with these models, especially if they're catastrophic. And I yeah. give people credit for the ones that generate it. But I think we are such a data obsessed population now that you also, when you're displaying this type of modeling data, you have to display the assumptions. You have yes. to tell people why you came to that conclusion, right? It's not like March where people didn't understand this type of modeling. People are hanging on every word, on every diagram uh, and, and basing their lives and their, their future predictions on it. And so you have to tell them what those assumptions mean and how you got to them. And affecting policy affected our lives, you know, based on some of these, the, the projections, you know what I mean? Like we are going to uh, put in these amount of restrictions based on how things are looking. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I'm, you, you, you gave a much more politically correct answer than I ever would at this point, just cause I do get a little bit frustrated that, I mean, uh, it, I think what would make me happy actually Zane, that, that you, you uh, expressed is the, like adding the assumptions, what is being assumed in this model, um, why it might have, uh, why it's, it's been so off based on, you know, like I could see where the assumptions may have, uh, may have gone wrong. Okay. Um, I'm going to leave this one open. Do actually I'll go with Sumon first. Do right. we think a third wave is happening? In your humble opinion. Ah, yeah. So, um, of course, I have no crystal ball. Um, I think that um, with, obviously, it's, it's not exactly going to map on that, but I think that um, what we're seeing a lot here happening, it's kind of like the strain replacement. And I'm sorry, my microbiology friends and virology friends for saying strain, but like a strain replacement that kind of happens at the end of the season with flu A and flu B. Right. And you, we, we often get that. Um, I do think that we're going to have a swell in cases. I think that we might see um, I've been calling it a wavelet. That, that, that's what I expect. That's what that's what I can see happening. 
the one thing that I'm, I'm also very um, uh, adamant about is that we've been looking at a lot of these numbers, 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 numbers. And one thing that I think that, that the numbers are starting to become much less relevant. So first of all, we have vaccines happening. It's slow, but it's happening. We have um, LTC covered in Ontario now, right? So now you have a whole bunch of numbers that are there of people that the, that proportion of people getting hospitalized is not going to be as big. And we have to remember, why did we do any of this, any of these restrictions, any of this? It was to slow community transmission so that the hospitals in that region don't get overwhelmed. So if we're getting to a point where we have a vaccine that reduces people from getting hospitalized, Right now, I mean, we're obviously not there at the end yet, but right now we're in a transition period where now less people are going to get hospitalized. Less uh, LTC in my region is going to get hospitalized now uh, by virtue of the, the vaccine. So I think that we need to start moving away from this daily case count and looking at other metrics. And that's tough because now it gets nuanced. And I'll, I'll point out one more thing is that the numbers are going up. Okay, uh, I mean, I guess today was a bit of a mistake, but there were a couple of days that there were 1200 or whatever. But the thing is that there's also sweeps going around looking at outbreaks. There's a big outbreak in the homeless shelter in, uh, in homeless shelters in Thunder Bay, in Toronto. There's one in Lambton County in Sarnia, where I'm from. So these things affect the numbers. But if we do a lockdown in Peel, what's that doing for the um, homeless sh uh, shelter outbreak in Thunder Bay? Nothing. And I think that's what the, um, uh, my frustration has been is that when the numbers go up, everybody wants to lock down and that's not necessarily the problem. And um, I think that uh, we, we need to have a, a more precise way of dealing with this thing. I love it. Precision. Cause I mean, I know it's not politically correct. Maybe it's, I'm just getting more uh, brave here, but it's lazy. <laughs> I'm sorry. The lockdown is lazy. I'm and it's because we're not getting to the root cause. You're not, you're not getting to the root of the problem. And we've talked about this many times. Like when we talk about essential workers, when you talked about initially, especially in that first wave, LTC, like that's what locking down ain't dealing with the main issues, the main, the main source of the problem. But um, I do agree, though, the, the, we do need to emphasize get away from cases because once again we are vaccinating our most vulnerable um and they're 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 the priority they're the ones that we see in icu they're the ones that we see in hospital and so that's going to have in my opinion a humble impact on on the on uh, how things uh end up can i can i add something to this yeah, yeah. Uh, one, one quick thing i wanted to add is that this is a, a crazy thought that i, I want to kind of suggest to everyone is that right now we're doing community um, testing for COVID because we need to know what's happening in the community where we are in the pandemic. There will be a time very soon, and I'm talking about this year, where we won't have to test the community anymore because we know that whatever's happening in the community, we don't need to know as long as we, we, we're monitoring what's happening in the hospital. Mm -hmm. And I, we, that's what happens with influenza every year. So influenza, we know that around the winter time, wh whatever it is, whether it's, it's uh, November some years, it's January some years, we have a spike in cases and we know that at the hospital, we have to hunker down. We don't uh, close the community when we have um, uh, uh, influenza spikes. We don't um, start testing the community in October, November and see numbers going up. We just see it in the hospital and deal with it. And that's what's going to happen with COVID as well. And one thing that I'm really interested in seeing, I'm already seeing people talking about fourth wave but when COVID becomes more of a endemic type thing, I wonder how viral interference is going to start to play where influenza is going to say, Hey, you're on my turf. What are you doing here? Mm -hmm. And then just uh, kind of compete with it. So it, it'll be a very interesting. Uh, um, 
I put that out on the group. I thought I was I thought it was a little bit voodoo. You know what I'm saying about the the viral interference because it was crickets when I threw that out to y'all. Oh man, but but the thing we see it right. Like why one year is H1N1 pandemic H1N1 high, and then other years is H3N2, right? There's fact, and they constantly uh, compete with each other. Yeah, because honestly, it doesn't make. I I don't care. You could mask. You could triple mask everybody on Earth. It still doesn't make sense that there's no. Influent, relative influenza going around and and can't like in the world like I, I haven't I can't think of a hospitalization with influenza positive in our area but I'm sure there has been but you know what I mean like that's yeah. to me is crazy crazy have you guys seen any I haven't seen I haven't seen a single one Not I haven't even heard one. of a single one you guys are ID cats. There, so an, there was there was an article I think I was reading that that the Public Health Agency of Canada can't declare the start of influenza season because there've just been so few cases. It's so it's crazy. Like I you honestly, just, if, I I I have I thought I saw the citation where there's been like something like nine cases in the country, and I'm too afraid to like bust that out because I'm not. Well, I just did, I guess, but because uh, it seemed too crazy of a number, but. Uh, like literally, there's no influenza. Like that's and and, and you hear people be like, "Well, you'll see the effectiveness of hand washing and masking." I'm like, still, there's like there's times where people aren't doing that. You know what I mean? And so like, like let's get real. Like you, there's going to be one or two cases that creep in there. You would think. So there's something more happening. First, anyways, all right, Zane, your opinion on third wave? Do you think we're? Are you anxious? You, what do you think? What do you think is going to happen? Yeah, I mean, I think we talked about this, and you know, the three of us have even written about this, right? Like, it's there are still vulnerabilities, and like it or not, as people start gathering, as workplaces start opening, as there is more, a little bit more transmission, and with variants here, and I, I don't want to necessarily throw, you know, that that, that they aren't going to transmit, they are. Uh, and they, they, you know, they seem to have vulnerabilities in densely populated settings. Um, there are vulnerabilities in workplaces. There are vulnerabilities in jails. There are vulnerabilities in shelters. There's vulnerabilities in other congregate settings that haven't been vaccinated. And like it or not, you know, yes, community, lower community transmission helps protect those places. It's not perfect, but it does have it. But it's not trickle down. And, and so they're, they're, those controls are in place for a number of those settings. And I think Thunder Bay is a great example. I've worked in Thunder Bay for seven years, and I know that community is a huge amount tied to Indigenous reserves, the jails, and the, 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 the scarcely housed setting downtown. And to see COVID get into that setting, uh, it, it is disturbing because it is such a, a fragile, fragile environment with such mobility, with such mental illness. Um, and uh, and again, you know, none of you can walk down Thunder Bay tomorrow. And they did. But again, it doesn't necessarily quell the transmission in the setting when people aren't housed properly, when jails aren't staffed properly for this type of outbreak. Uh, and uh, and again, all it does is when community transmission gets higher, the settings become tinder pods. As so, you know, I think as we start getting vaccine rollout, as those people start getting vaccines, you start dealing with vulnerabilities. But I do have a little bit of pessimism over the next month or two. Th- those settings are going to be lit up uh, and uh, it is going to lead to more transmission. And, and that's going to look 
poorly. And there's going to be hospitalizations from it in that sense. So I think we are going to see transmission. It's not going to be as profound as the long-term care deaths that we saw in this wave. Um, but I, I do think we, we still have a lot of vulnerabilities as a society. When community transmission starts rising, we unfortunately will see those settings hit the hardest as part of it. Isn't it amazing, though, like to this day, you know, we experts like yourself, uh, Zane, Suman, you've heard Steph talk about this endlessly, Steph Burrell, how we just, we know where the problems are and we still aren't coming up with the solutions to address them. I, I you know, it, it's, it's almost like, uh, it's, it's insane, actually, when you, when you sit there and think about it, you have you, the experts in the field that's seeing it in real, like in real life and, and how it plays out and you could scream it from the rooftops and, you know, it, it, we still are not getting to the root problem. It's, it's, it's hard to see. And I, I hope, I hope we do a better job in the future. We did a little, did a little thread on like lessons that we hopefully learn from this moving forward for the next, you know, that was a great thread, you know. man. Oh, th thank you. Thank you. Yeah. But uh, I just, it was funny because Angie Seth asked me this question uh, on, was it su Sunday? Whatever, yesterday. And I'm like, thank you for asking me, but <laughs> I, I'm like, I normally would give an eight minute dissertation on this and, and uh, you know, I had 45 seconds, so I had to hammer out maybe three things, but it was, uh, it was actually it was well done. It was very well done. Thanks. Uh, Thanks okay, and I'll, I'll give you one anecdote. And I think this one hurts, right? Like it, you know, there was a, an individual who's scarcely housed that, you know, as part of his healthcare team didn't want to get vaccinated. And, and it was, you know, you know, there's an outbreak ongoing. What do you like? What do you need? What more proof you have friends and family that are COVID? And the answer was, you know, this person was being put up as part of the city housing in a in a hotel. And his answer was, "Listen, I get vaccinated. The pandemic ends. That's great for all of you guys. My housing disappears, uh, and I go back to going to the streets, right? Um, and." You know, it, it is, we've done a lot of things temporarily to, to support populations. I mean, I think we've done a lot to help certain populations. But if we don't take those as permanent solutions, if we don't work towards housing for people who are scarcely housed, if we don't work at workplace safety for, for some of these plants in Peel region, you know, we, we just did things temporarily for a pandemic. We didn't learn our lessons from it, right? And I think that that one hurt me a lot. That one really was profound to me to say, okay, you guys are worried about this pandemic. I'm worried about where I'm going to sleep after this pandemic. Yeah, and I mean, honestly, Zane, if you're going to 80-20 health in general, like if you're going to have an approach to really like a, an intervention that will have a monster impact in the, the patients and uh, in patients, it's having housing like period like that if you address that full on and then you you realize you know when when you think about the resources we've used to you know address covid you know it, like if we just focus some of that even a small portion on on making uh, housing a reality for many of our canadians i think uh, we would actually get a return on investment actually um wow so people 
this is your opportunity to ask your questions. I see that we have a couple uh, questions that made it through the wonderful Julia Hajar, who is our number one uh, social media lead, or essentially like a, the leader of, uh, amongst leaders in our group and has an amazing website, A Spoonful of Science. You should follow her, leave links in the, Julia, you should make sure to leave a links in, in the text box. Um, has a, curated a couple questions. So I'm going to start with this one. Um, I think I'm going to start with Sum well, actually whoever wants, yeah, Suman. If all the adults get vaccinated, what's the chance for the virus severe illness in kids? Actually, that's a hard one. Is it? You cut off the end there, say Okay, it says, if all adults get vaccinated, what is the chance for the virus to adapt and cause severe illness in kids? That's the first part. And how would this affect schools mask wearing for kids in September? Wow. I put it in yeah, the- uh, Yeah, box. that's yours, that's yours. Yeah, that's mine. Yeah. Um, okay, <laughs> listen, so I, I think if you look at virus biology, whenever we hear the word mutant, um, I've, I've actually mentioned this in, in, uh, when I've done articles that people think of the X-Men, right? People think of like, you know, you get this, yeah, exactly. Like you just get this radioactivity, you're like, get this crazy new strength or whatever. And I think that we have to remember that mutations absolutely can sometimes do something that helps the fitness of the virus. A lot of the time it actually hurts the virus and makes it less fit. And the more a virus mutates, that happens, right? So I think the chance of something suddenly becoming more, um, virulent to kids also doesn't make sense because you don't want to be virulent as a virus. You want to be more transmissible, but more uh, calm so you can find more hope. That's what happens, by the way, there's a guy named, what's his name? Nick Christakis, I think. He talks about the history of pandemics and he talks about pandemic virology and you can actually see that happening. Very interesting podcast he talks about. So the, the long and short of it is I think it's very unlikely, especially in this season. And I think that at some point masks will be there because people are afraid, but they will melt away eventually. Um, yeah. I uh, hope, yeah. Yeah. I like seeing your face. Yeah. No, I, saying, you, yeah. Yours. Well, yeah, mine, no, no, no one wants to see that. I can wear a mask for a while. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no, this is a pretty group. You're going to want to cut that mask off, yo. It's all, yeah, it's exactly. All. Um, so if... Um, if apparently we're all going to be get vaccinated by September, what's what's the point of Johnson and Johnson vaccine arriving in September? Is it true it's arriving in September? The contract is supposed to be filled by September. Yeah, yeah. And yeah I, again, there's there is some truth to this in the sense that um, you know obviously there's a big supply chain. The U.S. is going to hold on to its own, and so you really have one manufacturer. I think in, somewhere in in the EU where it probably is going to be redirected into the EU in significant amounts. But even, you know what, even if we get half a million doses, we get a small allocation, that's a very powerful vaccine for particular settings, right? If you take that up to a indigenous colony, if you put that in emergency rooms and, and vaccinate your scarcely housed individuals when they show up, um, you know, you, there's a lot of places where you can put even a small amount of that Johnson and Johnson vaccine. So I, I agree. I mean, if it, it comes late, so be it. We still probably will need it for some point in time. You might even need it for things like boosters for the South African variant because that one actually works as a as a one that's effective against the variant that was first described in South Africa. Um, 
but you know, again, if you, even if you get a small allotment of doses, that still can do profound things being a single dose regimen. So I, I think uh, as in that sense, the other part is I think the U.S. will get through their vaccine strategy a whole lot quicker than we will. Uh, and so we may be able to tap into their supply, hopefully come June or July when, when they are kind of done with Johnson and Johnson moving forward. Perfect. Perfect. Um, here is the, Oh, there's a good question. The last question is a good one. Um, I'm going to just frame this one, Suman, as uh, how anxious are you about kids in school? So the, the question relates to uh, kids wearing masks, whether they need them or not. But based, And this could be both of y'all pipe in, but in terms of there's the data out there in regards to our schools a major source of spread, the, the data for kids giving it to parents versus vice versa. Like, where do you... How how worried are you about the school situation? And then, but at, at the same time, asking this mask, kids wearing masks at school uh, question as well. Yeah, so I, I think that like, uh, obviously the, the problem with this discussion is, is it's, it's quite polarized, right? I really try to stay with, you know, what the literature is showing us. Um, I think that I will, I always have to start with saying that there is definitely transmission that happens in school. Yes, there are cases in schools. And yes, there are situations where kids can bring cases back to their parents. There's no doubt about that. I think that what the, what we, what maybe the people that are worried about schools take exception with um, when people uh, kind of talk against that is not so much that that's not happening in schools that is that a driver of transmission? And I think what we see is that when you look and not just in Canada, when you look at other parts of the world, you see transmission chains coming into school and they stop. The school is not actually what's amplifying what's happening in the community. But what I've termed is my kind of not so creative term, but the occupational to household transmission chain, the one where you get occupational. I see this every day on the ward. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll give you a great example is Canada Post. So many people that are either at Canada Post or they're a family member of someone at Canada Post in, in Mississauga, that big uh, processing facility. You had a case come in and then it explodes in a household, right? That's a driver of transmission. That's something that keeps things going, right? Whereas what I see with schools is that schools, there's cases, but then if you look at the cases, yeah, there's whatever there was. I, I don't even know, 400 cases, but there's like, if you look at where they are, there's like two cases in each school. There's one or two schools that have seven and the rest of them have one or two. And then the second thing people says, well, maybe there are cases you're not picking up. And you're absolutely right. Those are probably there, but they're not necessarily kind of going back into the community and driving what's happening there. And that's what I think the issue is with schools. So I think that um, if you look at the risks and benefits of what happens with COVID and what happens with kids not being in school and having that um, interaction with kids and that development, I think that we've robbed many kids of a year's worth of, uh, especially that I think it wasn't it in California, they just opened schools um, it was after like a year. There's a ton of places in the States that are still not open. Actually. They're still not open. Right. Yeah. And I, I think just think about that, like as a kid missing your entire grade four year uh, and just how, how different you were from the beginning of grade four to the end of grade four. All I'm saying is I think that there's costs that we have to consider. And um, I think when you weigh everything, keeping kids in school was the way to go and masks fine. I think that's a fine price to pay, but I think that they will be coming off, um, at some point this year. Cool, cool. Um, unless Zane, you felt strongly about adding something, just let me know. 
Uh, no, loves I, schools. Schools. I hate schools. No, no. I mean, it, it's polarizing, right? And I think people want to look at the data. There's, there's different sets. It's not an answered question, but again, I think it's, you have to put everything on the table, including societal benefits on top of it, right? It's not just COVID. It's, it's a, a number of different things going in. And, and again, I am absolutely for things that keep schools safe as part of that and keep keep transmissions low into the communities. I think masks are, are not an unreasonable solution in that that context. For sure. For sure. Um, I guess this will go to Zane. Do you think there will be tough com- time convincing the younger age groups between, say, 18 and early 20s to get vaccinated? Awesome question. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, it's a great question. Uh, and and uh, yeah. I, I don't, you know, that that's a tough to reach population, right? You have to communicate on different levels. You have to get better incentives. You know, you're, you're not putting people at personal risk. I mean, we know from things like ST, STI health, you really work on risk mitigation in that population as compared to um, uh, uh, what, what, you know, uh, you know, abstinence or, or kind of extreme measures in that sense. So, um, it is a hard population to reach. I think you can start now, right? Like this is not a, you know, yeah, that'll be July. You know, they'll, they'll, they'll be fine. You got to start that now, right? You got to get them excited, entertained and, and wanting and demanding and answering their questions and making them feel appropriate. I and do have think, a vaccination you know, center, I mean, this is like a DJ. That 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 would yeah or exactly 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 food trucks outside like yeah yeah, exactly well see the the funny thing is that would be good for our like you know like Quadro and I were old Zane you're a bit younger than us but I think that would be good for us I think what do kids do now they TikTok and what I don't know what the kids you know what where my age is coming through you listen to the music these days my God I can't deal with it I legit can't deal with what's going on like. I, I never thought I'd be that that old guy, that parent or whatever, but I hear this shit and I'm just like, I don't feel it. I don't see it. You know I, I mean? try. I try. Where's the beat? Uh, Yo. Uh, you know what I'm saying? But uh, I, I, I think, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Go ahead. No, it'll be tough. And but at, at the end of the day, and this is where the controversial issue with passports comes in. Um, you may tie things like going back to university or going to college or going to a congregate setting to the ability to get vaccinated, right? And, you know, I'm, I'm working with my own university to, to what a return to school plan looks like. And, and yeah, I mean, I, I think none of these, all of these plans involve a good amount of vaccine in that age group. Uh, and so I think, you know, that might be the last incentive, but it doesn't mean that you can't positively message and let people make that decision on their own. It just means that, you know, again, some of those high risk things that, that have been left off the table may, may not be there. I will say this is another good example where Johnson and Johnson is actually probably not a big deal in that sense, right? You get 18 to 20 year olds, they're transient, they're all over the place give them a dose, be done with it. And they've had as much protection as they can, they need for now, essentially going forward. You, you, you actually linked to a, what was it that Waterloo article? Cause I've heard yeah. this on other yeah. podcasts before actually about the, the strategy of actually vaccinating our, our younger population. Cause that's a lot of transmission is happening through them, you know, and they come and visit their parents on you know, whatever X, Y, Z, uh, uh, occasion and uh that could be a, a, a you know a way of mitigating uh spread which i thought it was uh actually a conversation we haven't talked about much at all but it's 
it's, it's an interesting conversation regardless. You know what I mean? Yeah, um, and the Waterloo data suggests you you knock down deaths thirty three percent by immunizing yeah. people twenty to forty years old, right? As yeah. compared to immunizing older people, you knock down deaths a lot less, which is yeah. remarkable in that sense, right? Wow, yeah, it's it's really food, good, like food for thought. Um, but just to reinforce what you're saying about this one, when we had Heidi Tavorak on, and she's talking about how Senegal was doing creative ways to engage their youth, like that murals they had like hip-hop artists busting out tracks about um how to stay safe i was like yeah man I, i've like i don't need ford telling me what to, how to throw down you know, you know what i mean like uh this is just i thought it was i thought it was just genius okay um i really like this question with the cdc guidelines talking about allowing socialization for fully vaccinated americans what guidelines make sense for canadian after one dose if one second dose of our second doses are delayed. Wow. Any takers on that bad boy? <laughs> that's a tough I'll question. Okay. That's I'll, a, I'll, I love I'll, that's that's a brilliant it, question, actually. Here's the thing is that uh, I think what the as as Zane would say, the elephant in the room is I think one reluctance of the Canadian public health messaging has been is that if you give any concession to whatever, like relaxing this or doing that. People, I've heard this over and over and over again. People are just gonna go crazy and like, you know, just act recklessly. And we're just gonna, and what I've seen a lot is that we're going to lose all the gains that we've made. That I've heard that expression a lot, right? Uh, and I think that you know, aside from moralizing, I don't think that's completely accurate. Um, I do think that it's important that when people get vaccinated, they have to know that um, it's leading to something. Right. You yes. can't say that I mean, we've already been hearing it. Like, if you get vaccinated, you still have to wear a mask. I agree with that. But I think that you should also add to that, that, look, getting vaccinated, you're one step closer to being with other people. It's an, a very interesting point that now that we are um, spreading things out, you know, what does that mean? And I think that um, we have to start talking about it. We have to start talking about what people can do, uh, because once you start to see that hospitalizations are dropping, things are really, really improving in the right direction. And to a point that even if you do see a reversal, it's not going to happen quickly. Right. I think that we really need to start talking about what we can do. And uh, yeah, Zane's mentioned this a bunch of times is that give people safe ways to do things. Oh my God! I, and that's I, what I, I, I think. I don't mean to go off on, on a soapbox, but like this has been one of the biggest lacking messages throughout this pandemic. Imagine empowering people and saying, "This is how you do this safely." You're gonna gather at Christmas, like just imagine, like because they were allowed to gather Christmas Day, right? But instead, I was saying, like you know, if you had a at-risk family member, think about it. Number one, number two, if you could do anything outside. Like really the risk of anything outside, I'm, I'm sorry, I don't care what people are saying, but it's negligible. I'm sorry. Negligible. Uh, like I, I, from the data that I've seen, like I, I really think outside uh, is safe. Um, like really giving people the tools to and, and empower them and say what you can do, focus on what you can do. This would be such a different um lens and i think people would just like, even in terms of mental illness and hope you would see a different um 
but you would just see a, a more positive slant on these things. And it would, I think it would impact many lives of Canadians. I think we missed the boat on that. I really think we do. We did, especially when we look at summer months or times where things were in a lull. Um, so like, I, I just, sorry, I just had to say that because I, I think it was a, an opportunity missed in so many ways. Um, okay. Next, uh, this one's for Zane. When do you think we'll stop testing all the kids for, for their one symptom? When do you think we'll... It's like, like the one runny nose that, yeah. that gets a kid kicked out, which unfortunately, I, I can tell you, my daughter has had seven swabs. Seven? Seven? seven. Wow. Jesus. <clears throat> yeah. So 80% legit, but 20% were a little bit over calls. So, I mean, God bless that daycare. They'd love her. And so, so be it. Like she's tripled me in terms of swabs, which is pretty ridiculous. But anyways, um, uh, so, I mean, I, I feel this every day personally with frustration, right? It's interesting. If you look at COVID, you know, again, we were talking about influenza, right? Like my, I get lab reports from our, our virology lab. There's like two rhinovirus cases and the rest are all COVIDs, right? So at the end of the day, the etiology of a runny nose right now is much more likely COVID than anything else. And I think we have to recognize that, that that probably is, you know, what's circulating. It's not, you know, in September and, and when rhinovirus, enterovirus season starts, that late summer, early fall, it probably is going to be rhinovirus. And that's when you start making these value judgments to say, okay, is there a lot more of something circulating in the community? How much COVID is circulating in the community? You know, is that really reasonable? And I think as well to what Suman had said, you know, when again, this becomes a very community centered disease, when this becomes a disease where, where again, hospitalizations and deaths are in a consequence. Uh, and it really, you know, the, the whole concept of getting tested in the community is probably going to start falling by the wayside, right? It is going to be your kid has symptoms, stay away from school for a couple of days, let them recover and then bring them back in that sense. Um, and, and again, with a vaccinated population, I don't think we're going to you know, care if kids bring things back from daycare. I mean, I think, you know, Simon, you're a young dad, like, and, and, and you, you as well, Quadro, um, you know, your kids brought crap back yeah. from daycare, right? Like, oh. you, you were sick, you know, for probably months and months weeks. and months. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. Like that was just a normal entity of life. Right. And so when, when COVID is dealt with, when the parents have vaccines in, in, in hand, is it going to be a big deal when your kids bring something back from daycare? They're fine with it and you're fine with it. It's like life again in that sense. I, I cannot Beautiful. wait for the day. I cannot wait. For I the can't day. either. Um, I think the last couple questions here, actually, I got this one. I saw in the, one of the text box and I think it's a good one. Any thoughts on the eye protection? <laughs> Zane, yeah, you take this one. You're you're really yeah. much better than I. So so I mean, eye protection is one of these things. Like I mean, I think there's some data to suggest it, right? There was a good study that was done in contact tracers in India, where if they were wearing eye protection, the risk of getting COVID nineteen. You know, in India, they were doing like in-house contact tracing, like door to door knocking. Eye, you know, and so so you were with COVID patients and contacts, and the the ones that wore eye protection versus not had a differential differential rate of COVID in that sense. I, the, the the whole concept of eye protection comes down to risk, right? So, are you around people? Are you around people where there's a high risk of unidentified COVID in that sense? Uh, and uh, are you around? 
you know, is, is, uh, is there a high enough risk uh, with, with masking that you're going to get some aerosolization or, or viral shedding outside of, you know, masks on either entity in that sense? If you're, I think many institutions have kind of flexed to universal eye protection in that sense and in hospitals, many, you know, um, restaurants put them on their waiters and waitresses, even my kids daycare, the, the teachers wear them all day in that sense. Um, you know, I think if you're dealing with a population where, where their ability to wear a mask is probably compromised, it's not a bad intervention to add on top as an extra layer of protection. But if you're dealing with an environment where people can probably wear good quality masks effectively right now, then the eye protection piece is, is pretty little yield on top of that. And, and add to that, you're distancing and you're doing everything else appropriately, right? Like it's a 1% change or 2% change in a high risk environment, it makes sense. Um, uh, and again, when you're dealing with, you know, little kids where they can't wear a mask, it makes sense to give the, the user as much protection as possible. Um, but I think, you know, again, as you start being seeing vaccines, as you start seeing people be more comfortable, um, I think it's going to be one of these things that eventually does fall fall down in that sense, or get, gets left to the clinical setting more than just the, the, the regular world setting in that sense. Oh, for real, for real. Okay. Uh I got two more questions. One, um, Suman, with one dose, say many Canadians have their single dose of uh, whatever vaccine, will we still be restricted with travel? Do you, do, you, do you see that still happening? To be honest with you, I think that it depends on what, uh, the, what point of the pandemic that we're in. I, I, to be honest with you, like the... Right now, all these travel restrictions, I mean, they were initially put in place somewhat for show, although I am a person who thinks that they are doing something, right? Uh, just uh, deterring travel. I, I kind of like that idea for right now, but that's going to fall to the wayside at some point relatively soon. So I don't think that whether you have one or two vaccines is going to make a difference in, for that. I think it's going to be other factors that take that away. Um, uh, we, we, I guess this kind of loosely relates to vaccine passports, and we've talked about them. Um, vaccine passports, I think that for travel, I don't know, like, um, we do have it for certain countries, right, where you have like, um, uh, yellow fever, uh, the Hodge, meningococcal vaccine, those kind of things, you have them for schools. Uh, although, here's something interesting, I, I, I grew up in Ontario, you know, vaccination is a prerequisite for school, Right? But it's not the case in other places in Canada. New Brunswick requires measles vaccination. Manitoba does. And the rest of them don't require necessarily immunization to get into school. Really? I didn't even know the Ontario one was mandatory. Uh, yeah. Well, uh, you, you need to, uh, it's like an opt out or whatever. Okay. But the point that I'm saying is that it exists. Uh, but I think that um, uh, what, where I think it makes sense is if, let's say if you're a country that has a fragile healthcare system, you have maybe the vaccination is not quite up yet, but you need tourism as part of your, um, your economy. It makes sense to have a vaccine passport in, in, in that situation. But anyway, so I don't know, but I don't think that it's going to restrict us in Canada, but it might restrict where you're going as a destination. Yeah. I must say, I, I got one thing, like I, I got asked this question about like, can you hug your grandparents after you get vaccinated and, and stuff like, I, I just think we got to move forward if we're getting people vaccinated. They have to have a goal. Like there's a purpose of this thing. You know what I mean? And like, we got to get back to being human beings, contact, connection, 
you know, community, you know, like, so, you know, whether it's travel, whether it's, you know, seeing grandma, hugging your grandkids, like if you can't do it after vaccines and yes, this is not zero risk, but there, name me something in society that's zero risk. You know what I'm saying? And and you know, what's a weird thing right now, right? Like our biggest travel partner is the U S and if there, there's going to be a point when many individuals in the U S will be way more vaccinated, the rates will fall down in the U S and, you know, as much as we've been standing here on our side of the border saying, stay on your side of the border, there's going to be a point where the U S is going to be like, well, I'm actually lower risk than you are. And so what are we going to do about travel then? Right. Because by that, that, you know, a fully vaccinated two dose Pfizer person from the United States coming to Canada who wants to do business or who's doing for tourism, wants to go to Whistler, whatever, that's actually a low risk interaction, right? Like, yeah, you might want to test them on the border to make sure that they're not shedding COVID and, and that type of thing. But at that point, that person's probably the lowest risk person to be coming into Canada. Your fellow Canadians are probably higher risk than that person that wants to come in over in that sense, right? And so, again, this is the wonky world we're dealing with. We've been looking at the U.S. with disdain in terms of what's been going on there. There's going to be a point where their vaccines catch up and they're going to be looking at us and saying, well, I, you know, I want to come over. I'm protected, but I don't know about you guys up here. Right? Like, <laughs> They'll cl- close their border to us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Mary, oh, my goodness. Quadro, can uh, I do something? Um, yeah, yeah. Ask the last question. Can I ask you a question at the end? Ask it right now. My, okay. Ask it right now. Uh, so, so we're at the... we're close to the end that light of the tunnel what do you miss the most uh as a family hugging family okay we, we, we get that okay i'm talking about a material almost like a leisure thing what do you miss the most that you haven't been able to do in the last year that you're going to do when it's all it's all good my boys we used to have we get our families together like uh our, the guys that we would go play football uh, like uh we call our football crew like we'd go to there's about five or six of us. We go to a football game every year, but on a regular basis, we get we have a barbecue. Bring all the families in one house. Amazing. And just let the kids do be kids, smiling. We'd be you know having our beer. We would be uh, you know talking football, talking sports. We're all physicians too, so there's a little bit of shop top. <clears throat> you know the the wifeys are good friends, and we haven't done that in like over a year my boys like a couple of them that i know well like i only see them at work now um i miss seeing their kids i feel like uh we've missed out on on some of the times them growing up but i i must say i've, I've been blessed that in some ways a lot of things that are important to me have come back like uh I, my gym's opened up, but we, you know, I'm not, it's hard to book Movadi, man. You got to help me out, dog. Um, <laughs> but I'm back to playing hockey. Um, so like my kind of stress release from an ICU week culture is, is back. But uh, I love that question, actually. What about you? What about you guys? It's better than Suman, my question. Suman. Suman. Suman, okay, so, so, you know, of course, I mean, I haven't seen my parents in six Oh, I should say that August, too. Whatever I that was. Mom. I haven't seen mom. Yeah, you're right. My, my, although my dad got his first dose of um, of um, Pfizer on Friday. Oh, nice. So 
So I'm going to see them soon. Uh, so, so all that stuff, all the stuff, you know, uh, hug whoever. Okay. That's great. What I want to do, what I want to do is go to a restaurant with my family. I want to sit at a table and just eat the whole night around people that I have no idea who they are. I just want people to be walking in. I want to bump into a person going to the bathroom. I just want people that I don't know that I'm not afraid to be close to within reason. Like, I don't like people that much. I'm just saying that just like people just being in and, and I'm talking about nothing fancy. Like I'm talking about you guys have been, ever been to uh, Zane Earl's at square one. Yeah. 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 Of course. Going there and just sitting with people walking. That's what I miss. And I can't wait to do. That's amazing, actually. Concerts too. Now. Concerts. Imagine seeing a concert. Yeah. Or a sport sporting. Well, event. I was yeah. watching. Uh, you you saw that uh, that gift that I gave you the uh, Jose Bautista's bat flip home run. I was there, and I I can't. Were you at that game? I was at that. I would have taken off my shirt straight yeah. up. Yeah, it would have yeah. been weird. I was just like, I'm randomly, I'm going to take off my shirt. That's how excited I am. It wow. is. Like, I, I, can you imagine that? Like, Zane, you're a huge Raptors fan, right? Can you imagine yeah. right now just b- being a Raptors game? It would be so amazing. Oh, game oh, seven man. with was it game seven against? Uh, I was there. I was there. Who did I, I was there. I was there. Quadruple bounce. Oh, yeah, my yeah. God. I was there. My heart stopped. It was the, the <laughs> like I, I thought was we, like the me, most me, magical me. event. Like I, I just so happened to like uh, Kathy and I, my wife and I, we just turned on at that point. And I'm like, that in motion, like that shot was so hard over the seven foot. You know what I mean? Oh, we were really like, okay, overtime. It was getting late. I'm like, oh God, it, this lead. And it just was just like, when it, like it was surreal, right? Like, okay, so Raptors game number one. That is like my big thing. I had, I've never seen LeBron play. I had tickets to the Lakers literally a week before everything went to hell and I didn't get to go. I'm like, I'm going to go see LeBron play before I am done with life here, okay, before he's done with his career. Um, uh, and, and you know, the one thing I miss, and, and again, like, I think Suman and I both agree on this, is, like, I we do a lot of media. I'm happy to fade into the background and go back to my day-to-day projects, right? Like, I have a, a lot of global health projects that went on hold, and I can tell you the time I spend outside of Canada doing global health work, it rebalances you um and i think it it really gives you that perspective and gets you away from this bubble and this echo chamber of you know uh of what we are in canada like we are you know it gives you that global perspective of how small we are in the world in that sense right and and i think it's it's one of those things where if the longer it's been not doing it the harder it's been to to actually get that rebalancing moment that that often just brings me back to work you know with with that much more passion to get back to it and that much more passion for efficiency optimization and and you know doing things that affect people rather than necessarily doing things that that affect processes in that sense oh man and uh, cuz i'll tell you too like even in our little text group you 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 know covid can be infuriating you know what I mean? Like when people's attitude, people's uh, how polarizing some issues have become. The fact that we can't have honest dialogue about so many things, like the, the idea of even seasonality at one point was a taboo topic. But I, I want to say this crew before we bounce off uh, is that I know the the media stuff is draining, and I, I often get people ask like, "Why do you do it?" You know, like is it? And I gotta tell you. Um, the idea of being able to have that balanced discussion 
in a, such a topic that has been so polarizing. The idea that we can reduce the, so many people's fears because people don't really have a good appreciation of the risk. Like, you know what I mean? Like that, that often, I still see people running, you know, on the canal or whatever. And when they walk by, they're covering their mouths and worried that they're going to get COVID on the fly. I'm like, son, you got to work a lot harder to get COVID son. Like this ain't going to work. Um, but you, we can't under and underemphasize the work that we're doing to, as, as Suman mentioned, like really shifting that narrative and having that slant to positivity and hope for this, for this thing. Like it's important stuff that we're doing. So, I mean, I still, I'm still going to, I know you guys are going to still be hustling, but I'm still hustling. And, uh, I think it's amazing that, uh, uh, we even are privileged enough to be able to do that, man. Like, uh, you know, it it is a bit of a privilege to be able to step up and, and, uh, and, and dictate, help dictate things. But gents, as usual, Quadcast Nation, we said we'd bring it and we brought it. You know what I mean? We talk vaccines. We're talking, yeah, no, well, okay. I need Oiler Nation somewhere in there. Get your Oilers. Um, for those that are uh, just listening, uh, Suman's wearing his uh, Habs uh, shirt, which I don't mind. I don't, I don't mind the Habs. If it was Leafs, I would burn my screen. Um, but yeah, we talked vaccines. We talked AstraZeneca. We talked, you know, um, third wave. We talked variants. And at the end of the day, people, there is hope. And I think this is what I think you guys want to hang on to. There is hope with us Canadians getting more and more vaccinated. And I'll emphasize this one more time. You get offered something, you take it. Okay. This is, this, I don't care what you, you're reading about efficacy and so forth. The vaccines are amazing. They truly are amazing. And I hope that message came across. I want to thank uh, Zane. I want to thank Suman. I want to thank Julia for screening the, the 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 questions and all the work that you do means a ton and uh quadcast nation thanks for listening guys we're going to continue to dick help dictate the narrative and change that boogie yo changing the boogie all right peace